0: Uh, I should begin perhaps by saying that it's a little warm in here. They are working on the air conditioning, but we don't mind that it's so warm because we're talking about British colonies throughout the world. So we adjust to the, uh, the warm uh, temperature. We our need speaker. A <laughs> <laughs> yes, we need a puck-o-walla. Uh Our speaker, Hashan Uh is actually from uh, New Zealand, even though he teaches at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, His parents uh, moved to New Zealand from uh, Sri Lanka, or as it was called at the time, uh, Ceylon. Harshan then went on uh, to teach at various places, studying at various places, including uh, London and Cambridge, and now, Uh, teaches at the University of Edinburgh but he commutes between Edinburgh and Berlin because his wife lives in Berlin. So this is kind of a complicated story and a complicated life. He is going to talk to us today about precedents for Brexit, in other words, the countries that either left or refused to join the British uh, Commonwealth. Now, inevitably, this is going to lead. We hope to a general discussion about Brexit, and I hope that everyone will be aware of the critical moment that we are uh, facing. Uh, so, I think it's a good time for people to reflect on the significance of Brexit, even though it may turn out to be not quite so bad uh, as everyone believes. In my own view, it seems to me like they'll be crashing out. Uh, harshan
1: we look very. Much forward to <laughs> right, I think I'm set up uh, now. Well, thank you very much for uh, welcoming me me to, uh, to Texas and to Austin, and I should say it's, my, it's the privilege for me to be this is my first time uh, to Texas, so it's a, a great honor. But an even greater honor than being in your great state is to be invited by uh, Professor Roger Lewis who is the titan in my field of decolonization and studies of the late uh, British Empire. So I'm immensely honored uh, and grateful to Roger uh, for inviting me to here to give this talk. Now, Roger, when he asked me to uh, deliver this talk, said, for not uh, unnatural reasons, thought that people were very interested in Brexit. Uh, and uh, I'm a political historian of uh, decolonization in the last days of the British Empire and also of the export of the British parliamentary system to different parts of the world. So Brexit as it is a current history, if you like, contemporary history, is not my specialty. However, uh, it is something that all of us in academia, not of, not only of course us, but those in the citizenry of Britain are having to address and try to explain when even our own politicians are at uh, pains to try and do so themselves so when uh, Roger gave me this task I thought what may I uh, potentially contribute to this uh, discussion and I thought I would do this by looking at another important organisation that Britain has uh, tried to put a lot of work into but also eventually effectively abandoned, and that is the Commonwealth, an organisation that is uh, a, very, a very difficult one in some respects uh, to understand, even for those of us uh, like myself who is from uh, Commonwealth States and, and works on it. And when I was, I, one of the other inspirations of thinking of uh, doing this talk for you here was uh, uh, um, late last year, an Indian comic uh, gave a performance in London and uh, he said in his uh, stand-up routine that, um, that he, had, uh, he wasn't quite sure why the British had come uh, to India, but then after a while they started speaking the same language, started playing cricket, enjoyed gins and tonics, uh, and so on. And then he said, at midnight, suddenly you left. It was the first Brexit. Uh, and and so in that vein, I was thinking that it would be uh, quite an interesting idea to look at uh, the Commonwealth and how Britain looked at this organisation as it did, and for some still does, look at the European Union as a source to uphold its uh, principles and advance its global ambitions and economic ones as well. So I will begin with a little bit of a few statistics. It's not my, again, not my area, so I will forgive me if I am not saying it as aptly as some of you who are trained in such arts are. But in 2017, the the United Kingdom recorded a trade surplus with the commonwealth of over seven billion pounds. The commonwealth, so this is I should put the slide up. Oh, that's not especially clear. Uh, But there are 53 countries uh, in the Commonwealth. These are almost entirely countries that were once uh, possessions or or had uh, crucial colonial links with uh, Britain and its empire. So there are now 53 countries and there there is a waiting list to join uh, the organisation. So today, that, that grouping of countries, 53, from every continent on Earth, including the Americas, accounts for just over 9% of the UK's exports. But to put that into perspective, that is roughly the same as the UK's entire exports to one country, Germany. And then to link this to imports, said so the same current period... Uh, this, this accounts for just, just under 8% of Britain's imports come from the Commonwealth countries. But again, to put this into perspective, this is just roughly the same as the Netherlands, one country. Trade is mainly with, in terms of the Commonwealth countries. I said there are 53 states, but these are mainly with India, Canada, Australia, Singapore, and Sri Lanka. Uh, sorry, and South Africa. Uh, But so those are the main countries. Part of the reason these statistics are that way, of course, is because the European Union has rules about who uh, Britain or any of its member countries can trade with, but nonetheless, it doesn't hide the fact that the Commonwealth, in terms of uh, its trading relationship with Britain today, is less of a force than the European Union. This was not always the case. If we look at the period I'm interested in and we'll be talking to you a little bit more about today, the late 1940s and early 50s. In 1950, for example, the Commonwealth accounted for 40% of Britain's imports and 38% of its exports. So 38%, well over almost uh, 40% of Britain's exports went to Commonwealth states. And if you then do the comparison I did earlier and look at the countries that would make up the European economic community, which was six countries at the time, the same period 1950, this this corresponding figures were just 13% of Britain's uh, imports came from those six key countries from Europe and just 11% of its exports. So this was the um, context that uh, Britain, uh, the Commonwealth and the Euro- Western European countries had at that time in a trading relationship. But as we know with uh, things like international organizations, as you know well in the States, thinking of recent negotiations with NAFTA, that these politics sorry, uh, trade and statistics are not everything. It's also politics and culture and identity and also global ambitions so around uh, approximately around this time thinking of that from that perspective sev- around, just over 70 years ago winston churchill at that time leader of the opposition no longer prime minister famously spoke of britain being at the ver- at, in october 1948 uh, being at the very point of junction of three great circles among the free nations and democracies. First, he had the English-speaking world, which he included the Amer- America and, of course, a united Europe. And the third was the British Commonwealth and Empire. And Ernest Bevan, who was Foreign Secretary at the time from the Labor government, also used similar language, saying the three main po- pillars of our policy are. Uh, Western Europe the United States and the Commonwealth so this was a, a comparable parlance um, at the time uh, and that's what I'll be focusing on uh, as I look uh, today so you, can, you probably can't make this out but the Commonwealth is approximately 2.2 billion people which is about a third of the world's population accounts for about 14 uh, percent of uh, the world's GDP. It has ma- a massive country like India with 1.2 billion, and closer to my part of the world, Nauru is only 10,000. So it's a massive, great scale, and important for the story I'm about to say is that there are now that you didn't have to acknowledge the British monarch as the head of the organisation. Uh, there are now the majority are republics, and only 16 hold the queen as head of state in an independent capacity. So these are independent states. So I'm going to look at 1949. 70 years ago this month, the modern Commonwealth came into being. And here's a picture uh, at Buckingham Palace of the King uh, with the then Grouping of Commonwealth Prime Ministers uh, there. So there's DSN Anaika, Lester Anayaka Pe- from Ceylon, Lester Pearson from Canada, Liaquat Ali Khan from Pakistan, the King, Clement Attlee, British Prime Minister, Ben Chifley, the Australian, Milan from South Africa, Peter Fraser from South Africa, and Nehru uh, from India. So with that in mind, uh, this is. I would like to look at how this international organisation uh, came into being with, as I said, similar ambitions uh, that Britain had in the 60s and 70s for Europe, but also in some ways came unstuck. Can crowns be returned? Clement Attlee thought so. As Prime Minister, he postulated only a few weeks before Indian independence in August 1947 to his sovereign, George VI who was the last emperor of India, whether the imperial state crown of India should be given back to the Indians, and for that matter, the Pakistanis, if they left the Commonwealth as they ultimately paid for it. The king, along with the potential loss of this over 6,000 diamond studded headpiece, bought for his father's 1911 Durbar, had to deal with the more massive loss of the empire's greatest jewel, India. The, British, the great British paper, The Times, remarked that the imperial state crown of India, quote, on its velvet cushion in the tower was the precious emblem of a tutelage outgrown, a crown without an empire. India had marked Britain as the world's most formidable world power. The dissolution of the Indian empire meant George VI had to surrender the crown's preeminence and acknowledge the beginning of the end of empire. Potentially, if you like, it's a terrible term, but segs it. Uh, the, 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 the removal, of the end of the Commonwealth, the end of the British Empire, because as many argued at the time, without India, no such organization could exist. <clears throat> Other more personal cuts had to be recognized, including an eye from his signature georgius rex imperator an evocation that adorned everything from coins to post boxes across every continent the eye of course recognized the british monarch's grandest title which Vic- queen victoria first took as empress of india and proclaimed as such on the 1st of january 1877 at a lavish durbar in delhi india transformed the monarchy and the commonwealth so this is something I'll be looking at it today, looking at the crown. And at that time, when Queen Victoria communicated to her foreign secretary, Earl Granville, in January 1873, her impatience that no special mention of India had been made to her title since Britain assumed direct control after the Indian mutiny of 1857. The foreign secretary was left with no illusion of the Queen's belief in the importance of India and it for the crown. Victoria believed that India made, in her words, undoubtedly the sovereign of sovereigns and consequently empress. In 1949, 100 years after Britain seized the fabulous Kohinoor diamond, India, known as the jewel of the crown, declared its, inten- its intention to shed the monarchy and proclaim a republic. But within the Commonwealth. The monarchy and Britain, which had relied on India for its prestige, was now to be transformed by it once more by a new organization and a new title. The monarch, no longer King Emperor, so this is the Queen's father, would be head of the Commonwealth. The move changed the constitutional and political nature of the British Empire and Commonwealth and drew attention to a monarchy with a fast disappearing empire, with the possibility of the crown going with it. Britain's foreign secretary, Ernest Bevan, thought, like many of his officials, that the Commonwealth, you can read here, European Union, itself be dissolved rather than compromise Britain's identity and position and pretensions. So in this iteration, perhaps um, the monarchy itself would be swept aside and expel the crown as meaningless flummery or modernize it for a post-war era of decolonization as an internationalist institution unshackled by imperial pretensions. Either way, Walter Badgett's famous warning not to let daylight in on the monarchy hang in, ha- hung over the deliberations. Through the debates and issues that swirled around India's wish to become a republic and stay in the Commonwealth in this period in 1949, 47 to 49, we are able, I think, to discern the competing original reactionary and often bizarre ambitions for for post-war Britain. And again, you can read this to similar debates about the European Union and Britain's relationship with it. I'm not intending to look at all the debates Around India's decision to become a member of the Commonwealth, but instead to look at this how there was at that time in 1949, 70 years ago, comparable debates that are happening now uh, by Remainers and Brexiteers about Britain's position in the world and its relationship with countries it saw itself and sees itself as being closely aligned to. And this, of course, in the context I'm looking at does not involve just Britain and India, but these men who represented the men and women in their own countries, namely Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Pakistan, Ceylon, but also Ireland and Burma. Ireland, of course, figures very prominently in today's debates about the European Union, as it did in 1949 about the Commonwealth as well. This was an emotive and exhausting period for all concerned, at least judged from the accounts of the time. And I, I think in some ways we're looking here 70 years ago after these uh, debates, and for someone not uh, perhaps interested in this period, it strikes one as very odd how much passion was involved, which what seem is very uh, esoteric debates. I wonder if 70 years on people will look at Brexit and 2016 is in in a comparable light, but that's for a new generation of uh, scholars uh, to look at. Nonetheless, the issue of whether India should be in this new organisation and whether a new organisation, the Commonwealth, should exist um, was an issue that was uh, a huge one at the time and created uh, Britain's own the 1949 version of Roundhead's and cavaliers. This is, uh, these, this is a, a coin just a remind of, there's George VI, sixth, king, emperor, and uh, this is, as you can see, India, there when he was still um, head of state of uh, the dominion of India. The Commonwealth, with its complexities, contradictions, and shifting characteristics made it to some seem incredible. George VI appreciated this and thought the reaction of an outsider would, in his words, surely be that of the man who, on first seeing a giraffe, exclaimed, there ain't no such animal. The same could be said for the British monarchy's Commonwealth extensions. Though there had been the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary, the elected and collective crowns of the Holy Roman Empire, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and other examples, including, of course, the royal ties between England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales, the British monarchy and the Commonwealth, and its Commonwealth facets are, I think, inimitable. The metaphysical and mystical royal chameleon offered across the globe, and continues to, a shared and yet divisible monarchy that never ceases to baffle. As a, an example, during World War II, George VI declared war a weaker part as the King of Canada from the King of Australia. The King of South Africa contemplated neutrality, but then found new ministers to carry out the declaration of war. The majority of the population of the Indian Empire were against the unilateral declaration of war committed by the King Emperor's representative, the Viceroy, which nonetheless compelled thousands upon thousands in India to fight in his name. The king of Ireland remained neutral throughout the conflict, while the king's declaration of a state of war in London meant that colonies from Antigua to Zanzibar, from the Bismarck Archipelago to Malta, were at war too. Though the king, as Duke of Normandy, had to accept German occupation of the Channel Islands. George V, this is just a slight illustration of these manifestations, which I would proffer make some of the Brexit discussions look quite simple. George V, jealously aware of these imperial manifestations, scrutinized all imperial legislation to guarantee the crown's position and prerogatives. Uh, But he also saw the opportunity that the empire had to become a major international organization organization that had drawn from the bounds and restrictions of colonies and empire. The time seemed to agree. And rather than wallowing in, the, in, the national, in national self-pity at the loss of India in August 1947, thought the crown, both as an institution and a signifier of royal power, so the actual crown, could in fact have an opportunity to be refashioned for a new era." This is what they said in an an editorial. What has happened in that is that a symbol has been made obsolete by the emergence of the reality it was meant to foreshadow. If it can be regarded as a piece of jewelry emptied of its significance to which a new meaning may now be given, it might suitably be used to typify the function of the sovereign as the personal link of the entire Commonwealth and carried before him when he opens his parliaments overseas as the Crown Imperial is carried on like occasions at Westminster. This editorial and the principal organ of the British establishment commented that this intriguing remarketing of the Crown would would need the agreement of the states that paid for this historically laden headpiece and perhaps by doing so eluded that for the monarchy to successfully act as a unifying institution for this new organization, the Commonwealth, it must also have the consent of the new members who did not come from the kith and kin settler countries, namely Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Indeed, the South Asian leaders could compete with sentiments of their settler dominion counterparts like Robert Mendez of Australia who thought of the king as a father and of the empire as his family. The Silanese leader, Dia Sinanayake, told his fellow prime ministers in 1948 that he in fact represented, in his words, the oldest continuous monarchy in the Commonwealth since through the 1815 Candian Convention vested the near 2,500 year old Sinhalese crown on George III and his successors. As Sir Ivor Jennings remarked, a great constitutional authority, quote, a a good deal of ingenuity is required to prove the apostolic succession from Prince Vijaya to Queen Elizabeth. But nationalist history is not less influential through, through being romantic as the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. For Pakistan, the acceptance of the crown and commonwealth was weighed less on emotional searches for monarchical antecedents, and more on the perceived practical advantages uh, to be gained, which included military and personnel, thinking of a time when the Commonwealth was also a uh, military-based organization. Jinnah, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, had always been in favor of the Commonwealth membership, and of course became, as the first governor general, the king's representative in Pakistan, to Lord Mountbatten's disappointment, who wanted the job himself. Alterations to the king's title, not just the Indian challenge, were viewed with considerable suspicion and sober calculation by the Pakistani leadership. It's not just the English and the French that have suspicion uh, to each, towards each other. On being considered, asked to consider potential changes to the king's title in light of Ireland, for example, the Pakistani High Commissioner questioned the consequences of altering the ba- bounds and bonds between Commonwealth st- states, since in their words, in the final analysis, it is the British Crown that provides the link. The High Commissioner further explained that he, if he took the issue to Pakistan's constituent assembly, their parliament, where the issue of the country's future was being debated, they would naturally and quite legitimately ask me, what particular advantage will derive from being in the Commonwealth and having the crown? Though these opinions of Ceylon and Pakistan were not necessarily representative of their people, they are no less important, I believe, for that. Their interest in the link with the king and Commonwealth was in foreign policy terms perceived as protecting their entrance by being in the Commonwealth vis-à-vis the South Asian hegemon of India. For all the member states, the Indian stance on the Commonwealth, like Britain's today with the European Union, would draw all of them outside their comfort zone. And um, this was the main context of the debate in 1949. If the monarchy had been judged a giraffe, it would seem an even more improbable creature through these debates in 1949. So it was the Indian challenge. Now I will move on, which looks at uh, how India transformed the international organization of the Commonwealth. It was a matter of great regret uh, to George VI that he never visited Britain's Indian empire. Like his father, a Durbar had been thought vital to proclaim him not only as the new King Emperor, but also to personally affirm a connection with his Indian subjects and follow darshan. This is the ancient Indian principle, which was the principle, a uh, practice, especially for priests, kings, and leaders to be seen and see their followers in reverential and a near spiritual manner. The Durbar had been organized in 1937-38, but that was for Edward VIII. George VI was impatient to visit But the precariousness of the monarchy after the abdication and the Indian political situation made it constantly postponed and with the outbreak of war in 1939 near impossible. The great Indian party, the Indian National Congress, had declared in Lahore, which is now in Pakistan, on the uh, 26th of January 1930, a date from 1950 celebrated as Republic Day, that Pune Siraj, complete independence, and the severance with Britain be the objective of their party. Though things would change since India, Pakistan, and Ceylon would all become realms, as in uh, quasi-kingdoms, and not republics on independence, this and Gandhi's mobilisation of the masses over the limited reforms expressed in the Government of India Act 1935 created, if you like, that was almost like a a Maastricht moment, created a potentially combustible context for a royal visit, especially when it was unclear what, if any, reform George VI's Delhi Durbar would offer, as had been the tradition at the time. George VI realised, however, the desire for the Indians to achieve independence and hoped it would be within the Commonwealth. The possibility of secession that was mentioned as a possibility to entice Congress support for the war effort, appalled him, since to the King Emperor, it was not only against the interests of Britain, but also for many outside the Congress camp. In many ways, just as we are seeing today in Britain, what he was arguing, that the political party did not necessarily represent the views of all the citizenry and voters in that time. There was something, I think, to what the King perceived. Since, as there were several parts of India, which again makes the European Union and Europe look like a tiny dot, uh, when you consider the scale of the great Indian Empire, there were many within India, and remembering that their minorities would constitute giant countries in their own right, that did not agree with this Congress version. And rather than having pure emotional attachment to Britain, several sections of Indian society view the crown and the potential commonwealth as a protector of their interests, rather as some Britons see the European Union as protecting their interests as opposed to their own government. <clears throat> the great princely states, for an example, in India, which covered over a third of that great land mass, were, were convinced and conjoled to join either the successor dominions of India and Pakistan They were courted to take this dramatic step, uh, and being assured by the king's cousin, who also happened to be the last viceroy of India, Lord Mountbatten, that the crown would continue. So if you're talking about the lies on the side of a bus, uh, similar lies were told uh, to those uh, leaving the British Empire. As an example, an exchange with Mountbatten had with the Maharaja of Dolphore, on the 29th of July 1947, just a fortnight before Indian independence, is perhaps representative of the uses of the crown for decolonization on one hand and a Republican Congress on the other on inheriting the Raj on the other. Mountbatten explained to the reluctant ruler of Dalpur that he had, quote, never been able to understand your Highness's. Point of view that if you sign the instrument of accession, you will find yourself linked against your will to an independent government without a monarchical head. If you accede now, you will be joining a dominion with the king as head. If they change the constitution to a republic and leave the British Empire, the instrument of accession does not bind you in any way to remain within the republic. This was a complete lie. and and Mountbatten was able to add a personal royal gloss by claiming, quote, I know that his majesty would personally be grieved if you elected to sever your connection with him while he was still king of India. On the eve of independence, after the accession documents had been duly signed, the Maharaja, quote, with tears in his eyes, told the last viceroy of India, that it pained him to sign, but Mountbatten consoled him that the king's role had not gone but merely changed. Such scenes with varying lacrimose levels were repeated across the subcontinent where rulers and the ruled were promised not only that their relationship with Britain <coughs> and the Commonwealth would endure, but their rights and their positions would be protected in any new setup. This was not. Uh, the reality, but few knew that at the time. Harold Macmillan, representing Churchill as leader of the opposition, in the second reading of the India Independence Bill debate, said that the princely states, quote, had firm and devoted association with the glorious reigns of Empress uh, Victoria the Great and succeeding emperors. He hoped, therefore, that a flexible instrument of British constitutional development is capable of finding a suitable formula of association by which their loyalty and devotion to the crown may find a new expression in harmonious association with the British Commonwealth and with the United Nations. As Ian Copeland has argued, though George VI operated uh, and ruled or reigned under the conventions of constitutional monarchy, he nevertheless had the capacity to cause a lot of headaches for the government if he chose to make an issue of the ruler's dynastic connections to his house, which again, I think, uh, links to his daughter at present, who is called by some sides to intervene in the crisis, which would be going against the conventions, but she has the power uh, to do so through the royal prerogative, either by, for example, not giving her royal assent to any bill or by dissolving parliament. So this is used by both sides, as it was in um, 1949. The great grandson of the Queen Empress, George VI, was saddened by the loss of his imperial title Emperor of India. But in the words of his official biographer, he was no Bourbon, since he never confused the substance with the shadow. No longer emperor after the 15th of August, 1947, George VI was able to reassure his supporters in India and the Empire Commonwealth that he was still formally their king till January 1950. The fiery and heartfelt polemics of Indian nationalists against the Crown and Commonwealth had briefly to be quelled and republicanism kept at bay as the Congress leadership engaged in the negotiations for their new state in order to attract the princely states and prevent being isolated and surrounded by Commonwealth realms, especially, of course, their arch enemy of Pakistan. However, the Republican sentiment was embedded in their methods. As a Canadian diplomat observed accurately of at least the Congress, quote, one thing is certain amid so many uncertainties is that India is determinedly Republican in spirit. An essential feature of republicanism, as Indians understand it, is that the individual citizen is subject to no one person. To ask Indians to accept allegiance to any man is bad enough and becomes far worse when that man happens also to be the king of Great Britain. The Indian communists, socialists, were joined by leftist sections of the Congress party in accusing Nehru, who would become the first Prime Minister of India, and uh, uh, accusing the Commonwealth of racism and imperialism and having the king anywhere near their independent constitution anathema and contradicting their eviction of colonialism. Though even Harold Lasky, who was named as one of the last of the Republicans and a great friend of the Labour Party, even he failed to find a substitute for the crown as the basis of Commonwealth Association. This is something of the similar hurdles that we are finding at the moment to find agreement among different parties. The King Emperor also had bouts of frustration and was very worried that his something that he had uh, vested his entire uh, reign towards and that of his ancestors may all be dissolved and perhaps the British monarchy with it, even in Britain itself. The Commonwealth Nexus, as documents from Whitehall and Commonwealth Capitals called it, was viewed, rather like the European Union is rightly seen today, as an important network uh, for many countries to secure arms, aid, and access to all manner of diplomatic intelligence and economic information and preference. This is 1949. For Indian moderates, especially those trained in English law and history, like Satej Bahadur Sapru and the famed Indian civil service, like Sagarja Bajpai, the Commonwealth offered security and in the New Zealand Prime Minister's phrase, independence plus. Unlike Fraser, however, and despite personal sympathy for a constitutional monarchy, they saw that the writing on the wall spelled an Indian republic. The highly respected Sapra wrote in April 1948 of his belief, quote, that the republican form of government about which eloquent speeches were made in the constituent assembly was by no means inconsistent with alliance with England via the Commonwealth. Nehru agreed with this argument and as the great uh, Imperials and Commonwealth scholar, Nicholas Manser, a scholar also of Ireland and India, remarked, the Indian form of republicanism did not, quote, possess the doctrinaire on uncompromising character of Irish republicanism despite comparable distaste towards British rule. For the old dominions, the addition of the brown dominions, as the times termed them, saw an opportunity to rebrand and legitimise the older Commonwealth in a new age but nonetheless maintain their cultural and symbiotic relationship and identity under the mantle of the crown. The tune would change when India wanted to be a republic and disrupt this comfortable situation and displace displaced this hallowed relationship between crown and commonwealth." So this is looking at as a, a foreign king. So this is, a, a, again, I'm sorry, a, a grainy picture of um, Nehru here in Delhi, Lady Mountbatten, and Eamon de Valera, uh, the the, the great Irish leader uh, in Delhi, just prior, sorry, just uh, after Indian independence in, uh, I I think it's November 1947, that picture's taken. Inevitably, there were grave reservations of breaking the crown as the constitutional link in the Commonwealth chain and forsaking allegiance and alliance uh, to it. With all the states involved were multiple perspectives And the passions rose in the comparable manner we now see between Brexiteers and Remainers, like few other constitutional issues, which normally, as someone who teaches uh, constitutional history and political history, it's difficult to get your students very excited uh, sometimes about such things. But this really, like the European um, connection, uh, did get people very excited, just as it did in 1949. The Irish in 1946, with their very famously combustible relationship with Britain and the Crown, saw their constitutional obligations to the King as purely facultative, and in their words, and tenuous, and already acted, quote, in effect, a republic before this was achieved a few years later, also in 1949. Nonetheless, in the same memorandum by the an Irish civil servant, also saw the usefulness of keeping a link to Britain and the Commonwealth, not only for diplomatic relations with other Commonwealth states, but closer to home, to seeing the Crown as helpful in the ambition to bring about, quote, these are definitely not my words, restitution of the occupied area of the six counties. So thinking again of Northern Ireland uh, today, this was also thinking of the Irish in 1949. The same memorandum also prefigured the formulation that would arrive in April 1949, 70 years ago. Quote, the position of the king in Ireland has become so attenuated that in fact and in law, he is nothing more than a symbol of our external association with the nations of the Commonwealth. That position had long been argued by de Valera and Costello as the working methodology to exist uh, exist independently before being acknowledged as such. Dublin uh, finally removed the sovereign from their constitution when the Republic of Ireland was proclaimed 70 years ago this month on the 18th of April and consequently seceded from the Commonwealth. Perhaps in July the 4th, uh, was the first sexit but Ireland was doing it in April 49. However, like much in Anglo-Irish relations, this was not quite the full picture. By mutual agreement, both states created a treaty relationship that provided a priv- privileged relationship for citizens of both countries, whereby they were not treated as foreigners and remained, they remained the ballywick of the Commonwealth Relations Office, not the Foreign Office. George VI, meeting the Irish Minister of External Affairs, Sean McBride, a few weeks later, quipped, quote, What does this new legislation of yours make me in Ireland an undesirable alien? (laughs) Nonetheless, the Irish ambassador was placed immediately after the Commonwealth High Commissioners and before all other heads of foreign delegations at the King's funeral not long after in 1952, to show that very interesting link. The path of Burma held something of a dangerous precedent for 1949. The Burmese had originally showed, showed mild interest of remaining in the Commonwealth to expediate um, independence. After the end of the Japanese occupation of Burma, the British hoped to convince the Burmese on the traditional dominion road to independence like Australia, New Zealand, and so on. But local leaders like Thakan Nu and Maung Gale said that they had been, quote, fighting the British for a 100 years and could not stomach the British before Commonwealth of Nations, as it was called then, the British Commonwealth of Nations. David Rees Williams, the Minister of of Colonial Affairs, sympathized and thought United Commonwealth of Nations was a better formulation. However, the main hurdle, like in his words, the Southern Irish, was allegiance uh, to the crown, which the governor of Burma, Sir Hubert Rance, believed would prevent Burmese membership. The Burmese um, leaders, like many others across the world, believed India would never join. When India and Pakistan did, in fact, become dominions and consequently held the George VI as their head of state, the New Times of Burma reacted that the announcement that the two Indias will have to swear allegiance to the British crown has, quote, simply taken our breath away. Rance believed in June 1947 that the time was ripe for a new conception of the Commonwealth for countries that have no ties of blood, culture, or religion, his words, and saw with humble respect to his majesty that the crown may prove not immediately but ultimately a difficulty. Lord Lestow recalled that if it were not for the communists and greater effort from the British cabinet, Aung San, Aung San Suu Kyi's father, of course, may have tolerated the royal link that eventuated and thus stay in the Commonwealth. Again, thinking of these things, it's the Burmese are now thinking potentially of joining the Commonwealth today. thakun Nu incredibly suggested as an alternative to the Commonwealth, there might be instead a lead from Britain's Labour Party to create a political, in his words, a political federation based on the integration of socialist parties throughout the world. The crimson thread of kinship, which Sir Henry Parks believed bound the British world, would have taken a new meaning, and one can only imagine what the king would think sitting in this red commonwealth. So the settler king. So this is a picture of the king's brother, the Duke of Gloucester, Henry, Duke of Gloucester, uh, with the Australian cabinet where he was uh, governor general during this time in 1949. This was a Labour government headed by um, Ben Chifley. I'm going to spend the least time on this section because I'm going to focus later just on New Zealand. Uh, but these, this, this looks at how, um, as, as has been discussed uh, before by many scholars, the, 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 the Britannic realms of Australia, New Zealand, and, uh, and South Africa uh, and Canada. Uh, this was, as, as Philip Murphy calls, had near fanatical followers of what he calls British Shintoism, the concept of pseudo-religious reverence to the British monarchy. So this discussion coming in, in 1949, hacked and attacked this concept and this religious belief of many uh, Canadians, uh, Australians, South Africans, and Kiwis. As David McIntyre reminds us, the concept of Sir David Lowe's idea of a Britannic alliance of crowns gained wide currency and demonstrated the crown's geopolitical uh, ambitions and uses. And this was seen that the crown ultimately, as someone like John Darwin has argued, uh, underscored uh, a belief in defence ties, trade ties, and a certain racial exclusivity. Um, and these were very much at the heart, not just of parties of the right, but also parties of the left, uh, such as the Labour Party here uh, in, Australia, uh, in Australia. And interestingly, um, thinking of them Parties like this, thinking of an India in the organisation, let alone as a republic, was uh, to people like Robert Menzies a grave insult, and they were uh, very keen to ditch, um, ditch the Indians. As Walter Crocker, a very erudite Australian diplomat, diplomat, noted the Australian Prime Minister, quote, had no curiosity about and no interest in India or Indians, and long simmered in the company of Nehru during their long tenures of office. South Africa, of course, with its large Indian population and racialist policies, had complex objectives about Indian membership and the Crown. Jan Smuts, as Prime Minister, and from 1948 leader of the opposition, was incensed at Indian membership on Republican terms. Leo Amory tried to soothe his old friend's fears about the Asian members not long after the London Dock Declaration in 1949. He said, quote, I realise all the difficulties which may arise in a partly coloured Commonwealth, but if that Commonwealth can hold together, it may avert an ultimate war of races. End of quote. The move, in his opinion, could open the way for Iceland, Norway, and even the United States to join in his idea. Amory thought the move had removed a serious conflict and pondered it as, quote, is it inconceivable that one of these days Republicanism may become the black man's slogan and all whites stand together as monarchists, end of quote. Smuts confided, confided to Churchill that India should not have been accommodated and that his opponents, the Nationalists, were jubilant with the Republican issue, and the new Prime Minister, Daniel Milan, would use the conference as a stepping stone to full secession from the Commonwealth and for links uh, with Britain, and enhance, ironically, their own segregationist (coughs) policies in uh, in South Africa. Okay, sure, sure. so this was uh, this was a major um, aspect. So I'll quickly finish by um, looking at quick uh, to end on looking at New Zealand's uh, link into this. So in uh, to, in today looking at this like the statistics I did earlier, New Zealand uh, U, U, the UK accounts for just 2.7% of New Zealand's exports and 2.9 of its imports. Whereas in 1950, uh, would you believe? Over 50% of New Zealand's exports went to the United Kingdom, uh, which of course was uh, a huge amount, and New Zealand's economy was there. So when Harold Macmillan announced in uh, July 1961 that he wished to join the European community, this was seen as, if you like, uh, the first Brexit uh, for New Zealanders, since they saw that their economy would be in a disastrous state and may well collapse. And so Sir Keith Holyoke, the New Zealand Prime Minister here, with then Lord Privy Seal uh, Edward Heath, uh, were trying to get special conditions uh, for New Zealand. Um, and there was a, a, there was a lot of discussion that maybe New Zealand should have a public campaign, which was supported by uh, Lord Beaverbrook, to have a publicity campaign, he said, would you rather Uh, back uh, New Zealanders, or those we fought and defeated in the Second World War. So this was, and Beaverbrook and Holyoke didn't do it, but there was a lot of discussion and support from both aisles, both sides of the House, and both chambers, I should add, as well. And I have here, I I won't uh, read it all out, but a memorandum that was sent uh, to the Queen in 1972 from the Social Democrat Party in New Zealand, asking her to withhold the royal assent to the European uh, Communities Bill that would be going to Parliament because, in their view, uh, for it to pass uh, would end the Commonwealth and destroy uh, the allegiances and affiliations that countries like that there had. And interestingly, thinking of today's debates, uh, undermine British sovereignty and Commonwealth ties, and create a uh, racially exclusive uh, organization. Um, And I I think that's a a very important fact. And to end, I couldn't come to Texas without having having a picture of uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, here. And this is a picture. He was the first ever uh, American president to visit America in, in New Zealand in October 1966. Uh, and you probably don't know at least this man here. This is Brigadier Sir Bernard uh, Ferguson. This is an, an Edinburgh link. He was the Governor General of uh, New Zealand and LBJ is in New Zealand. And uh, this is, speaks to in some ways, New Zealand, despite what had happened before with its you know almost religious loyalty uh, to Britain, saw the writing on the wall after 1949 and especially 1961, despite de Gaulle's veto, that their interests lay elsewhere, and they should have to diversify and look to new directions, which did not just mean having military connections with somewhere like uh, the United States, but also, which is in some ways very difficult for someone like Keith Holyoke, to look to Asia uh, for greater economic connections. And if you look at those statistics I was saying to you earlier, it's uh, now... Without question, almost the vast majority of New Zealand's trade, and this is mirrored with a country like Australia, is with uh, with with Asia uh, and America rather than and other Commonwealth states rather than the two percent we see with Britain. So um, I'll I'll end there and uh, thank you very much for having me at your wonderful university. Thank you.